So the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Quick summary or refresher, if you could, if you haven't been following us. This is uh, Jesus standing in front of a large crowd kind of early on in his public ministry. And uh, people have followed him to this hillside in northern Israel, in the Galilee area. And he's going to unfold for them why he's come to this world. And he'll reference it in these kinds of terms. He's come to bring his kingdom to bear here on earth. And what he's simply saying is that the kingdom that he's coming to bring is present now because the king is present, referring to himself. And then he describes what life in that kingdom could really be like. And it's a stunning life. It's an amazing life. It's an unfamiliar life to many. And so uh, what we... What we read and hear as Jesus kind of unfolds it is that as he does, we realize he thinks different things about this world than certainly what Jesus' culture thought of and actually how we think of things sometimes as well. <clears throat> and so we've been trying to think through Jesus' thinking so that his thinking could bear on our thinking so that we would increasingly think like him. No wonder none of that made sense to anybody, right? But this is what we've tried to do. And so Jesus is talking in terms of uh, what life with him really could look like. And over again, he says, you know, you've heard it said, or you've thought this, but I tell you something different. What was he saying? Well, over and again, he used this idea that life in the kingdom is an internal life. It's not a behavior life. Well, it, it affects our behavior, for sure. But it's not about correcting behavior. It's about changing the inner content, the inner motive, the inner person of who we are, which then determines our behavior. So he'll reference, for example, another great number of examples, anger, for example. Um, left unchecked, that leads to really terrible kinds of things, all the way from unchecked and all the way to the end, leads to things like murder, which we all know is wrong. And so what we do is we try to go, well, I'm not going to be angry anymore. And we prove <laughs> grossly unsuccessful to just try not to be angry. Because there's all kinds of things that make us angry. Where Jesus can walk, I think differently. I think that if the inner source of where you get your life from shifts, you won't have a need to be angry anymore. And this is how he goes through it. He just paints this incredible picture as it relates to relationships and how we self-identify and where our confidence comes from, where we find our peace. And that in his life, you don't have to live to impress anybody. You just can live the kind of self-unaware life, if you will. And you live with confidence and joy and courage. And this is the kind of life that he paints. And it's rather attractive, actually. And he keeps circling back over and over again. It's the internal life. It's the internal life. It's what I came to give you. It's what I want to affect. I want to affect how you think. I want to affect how you see the world. And that will determine the kind of life that you live. So he gets to kind of the end of describing what that life is like. And almost as if to give a summary statement of everything that he set up to this point. He throws in this simple verse that also has got a title to it, called the Golden Rule. This is what he says in Matthew 7, 12. He says, so, or as a result of, or therefore, or to summarize all that I've said, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This actually sums up all the ancient scriptures and all the prophets said, and everything that's come before, they were pointing to this idea simply. If you will do to others what you want them to do to you, and the reason you'll do them to others is because your inner life has changed and been refocused, and you'll actually do to them as I have done to you. It's a remarkable, remarkable statement that Jesus made. 
In other words, the life that I just described, how you would like to be treated, is how you would be treated. It's what our forefathers said. Now, it would have been totally inspiring and amazing if he had just ended it there, uh, closed with a nice prayer and sent it for everybody off the top of Bell. Right? That would have been a great place to end. But he doesn't end there. He kind of shifts gears a little bit. Because he wants to lead this group of people that have gathered on the side of the hill, and maybe us this morning as well. He wants to lead them someplace. He wants them to think about something. He wants them to consider an idea that he has. And in just two short verses, he throws out this idea. And this is what he says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, here it is. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road, you may know that road, that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. This is Jesus' grand invitation. Does it sound like an invitation to you? It actually sounds more like a warning in one sense. This, on the other hand, is an invitation. Right here. This is something that Elfie and I got from Pastor Kevin and Tisha. This uh, last couple of weeks, it's uh, from their daughter, Brooke, who's graduating from high school this spring. And uh, it's a postcard. You can't see it from there, but it's a postcard with three pictures of Brooke, smiling, enjoying life, relieved that high school is over, right? And boldly stating, class of 2019 graduate. And they're inviting us to be part of the celebration of Brooke's life. They're going to do, apparently they've rented out the entire Cardinal Stadium. They're doing a graduation ceremony for her. It's fantastic, right? It's great. And then they're doing an open house at their home. And Kevin wanted to make sure that I invited all of you to their home on that occasion as well. Well, not really, but feel free to show off if you want. But that's an invitation, right? It's an invitation to celebration. It's something good and something wonderful. It's not... A, it's not exactly, it doesn't feel like at least an invitation to say, hey, look, there's a narrow gate, and that's not a, that's a gate you want to go through, and there's a wide gate, and that leads to destruction. What kind of an invitation is that? Well, what Jesus has offered up really is an invitation that I didn't actually realize kind of the extent of what Jesus was saying, or what he was offering, actually until just a few years ago. In fact, I recall as a young man hearing someone explain this invitation. I recall this. I was sitting in a church, in a hard wooden, a hard wooden church pew, and the man that was sharing the invitation was yelling and pointing his finger and pointing and sweating profusely, telling me that if I didn't pick the right date, I was doomed, doomed to hell and destruction. I cowered in my seat, was scared to move. It was his annual turn or burn invitation that he would offer up. So I don't know exactly what picture goes off in your mind when you think of this. But it raises some questions as to what Jesus actually meant by it. Is Jesus suggesting, like a TV game show, pick the right door and you get the Ferrari, the wrong door and you get the junker? Is that what he's saying? Is Jesus saying that very few people will get into heaven while the bulk of humanity are destined to hell? Is God hard to get and just making sure the riffraff stays out? Is God angry at us and trying to scare us straight? What is Jesus doing with this? 
Well, I want to dig into a little bit by starting to look at a word that I highlighted in red in the verses that I read in the text. It's the word road. It, the better word actually is way. Or if you want to use the Greek, you could use the word hados. It's the way, it's the road. It's actually a literal highway or path or trail under your feet. That's a literal definition of that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's trying to paint a word picture of what the path that he's going to talk about looks like. It's a hados. The, this word hados is actually used 800 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a very, very common word. The way Jesus is using it here is to think of the way as a person's entire way of life. Their pattern of living, their thinking, their worldview, their ethics, their morality, their values. How we would sum up their life. And he sums it up with saying, however that is, whatever your worldview way of life is, that's your hot-offs. That's your way in life. Now, if we were to do a quick survey of the entire Bible, we would find that Jesus is by far not the first person and only person to use this idea of life being a hados, a way. In fact, there's a pattern in all of the scriptures of there being two hados, two ways, two options throughout. It's interesting that there aren't oftentimes many options. There are two options. Can I give you a couple of examples? I am anyways, so here we go. So... God has freshly created the world. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning. God's freshly created the world in all of its beauty and all of its splendor and all of its wonder and his finest, best creation, the highlight of all creations, to create two humans, Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 2, we read this, and the Lord commanded the man, that's Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, this wonderful garden that I have created. That's one way. That's a hados. Adam, you can do that. You can eat from any of the trees in the garden. However, or but, here's another option. This is the second hados, the second way. You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's hados too. And when you eat of it, you'll surely die. God lays out these options. And the hados one is this wonderful, plentiful garden that he has created, which is a, a garden of his presence, of walking with him in the cool of the night, of this... Uh, <laughs> sharing life together with him. That's the picture. And in it, he says, that's the way, that's the hadas for you. And you get it by enjoying this wonderful garden. However, there's another way. I have put one tree in this garden. I think it's a metaphor. It's this knowledge of good and evil, making choices uh, to take God or to not take God. That's a second way. If you take that second way, that second hadas, it doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. Now, if you know the story, you know they chose to eat of that tree. And death entered the world. Now, Adam and Eve did not keel over and die physically as soon as they ate from the tree. The ground did not fracture and swallow them up into a dark, hot place. But in the mind of the writer, their relationship with God was forever altered and never before thought of a fracture happened between God and it, them, it appears. And then if you read the next three or four chapters, what you will read about is you will read about them and their descendants being filled with anger and jealousy and lust and contempt and condemnation and 
murder, as well as Adam and Eve would eventually die. What God has painted for them is a life with him, a hodos with him, or a life without him, a hodos without him. And they chose the life without him. So the way or the road that they chose became for them not just some future reality, but a present reality for them. They were living in it. It was a way, it was a way of living that they chose. And there were consequences for that. Again, if you know the story of God, God is committed to human thriving, and so many years later, after that fact, another husband and wife appeared on earth, Adam, or Abraham, and Sarah. And God invited them once again to follow him, to make their way with him. God invited them to lean on him, and he said, through you, I will bless the whole world. It's what I invite you to do. It's a, it's a way, it's hot us. I'm committed to blessing the whole world through you. Well, how? By following God. That's the Hadas. And as Abraham and Sarah's descendants follow the Hadas of God, they actually are blessed. And they are a blessing to other people. They are filled with goodness and shalom and blessing. And as the story of God's people unfold over and over, they are faced with this invitation from God. One way or another way. If you jump ahead hundreds of years, God's people, who have sadly drifted away from Abraham's hados, and once again, God needs to come and rescue them. The time, this time through Moses and uh, through a vast nation of people as they're on the border of a wonderful land that God has promised them, Moses stands before all of these people and reminds them of two options, two ways, two hados that they can go. In Deuteronomy 5.33, we read this from Moses. He says, walk in obedience. Similar word, hadas. It's, a, it's a, uh, a takeoff off of that word. Walk in obedience to all the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will, that you will possess. And then the next 25 or so chapters, Moses lays out what that way looks like, what it is, what that hadas looks like. And then in chapter 30, of Deuteronomy, he again lays before them two ways. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 30, 19. It says, This day I call heaven and earth as a witness against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. These are the two ways. They're, they're there before you. You get to choose which way. Now choose life, he says. That would be the right choice, so that you and your children may live. If you were to spring ahead again, God's people, and many years later, don't walk in the hadas of God. They actually walk in the hadas of the godless pagan nations around them. And they aren't a nation that's blessed in that season. Just as predicted, they walk away from God, and it has some consequences for them. They've turned to follow the hadas of the culture. But God does not give up. This is his power. He comes to them again, this time with a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And this is what Isaiah says to his people. He says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own hadas. That's what we've done. We've gone our own way. However, the Lord has found a new way. And this time it's not just a way, it's a person. The Lord has laid on him, that's a new hadas in this person, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and his sheep before his shears are silent. So he did not open his mouth. In Isaiah's writing, he refers now to a hadas as a person. First time that's happened. 
And we're going to get to find out that that hados that he speaks about is actually Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And now we pick up today's text, where Jesus once again is standing in front of people like God has before. And this time he says, I want to remind you, as God has throughout the text of the scriptures, there are two ways. And I invite you to, well, not just invite you, you will pick a way. You will. Do not choose is to choose. And he lays out what these two ways are. So back to the text once again. He says to them, here are the two hadas. Enter through the narrow gate. And there's also a wide gate. There's two gates. And saying this, Jesus is now turning a corner. He's explained the way of being a follower of his and what it looks like, what life in the kingdom looks like in real terms. And now just like Moses and Isaiah before him, he's moving the discussion from information to invitation. It's a switch. He's, he's coming to the conclusion of his talk, and he just can't finish it by sending him off to Taco Bell. He wants to finish with an invitation because what lays out before all of humanity is two hadas. And he's going to explain what those two are. So let's talk a little bit about a gate in the ancient city because this is the metaphor that Jesus uses. Imagine that you approached a first century city in the Middle East. Cities were surrounded by tall, thick limestone walls for protection from outside enemies. At strategic locations around that city, oftentimes the architects would and designers would put in gates. These would usually be thick, solid wood, reinforced doors. Not gates like you and I might think about. Some of these would be large double doors that would swing open to allow a garrison of soldiers through, to allow oversized supply carts, and even large crowds to get into the city. Others would only be wide enough for a donkey or camel or a horse with a rider to get through. And still others, on a few occasions, there's records of there being gates or doors that would only allow a single person to get through, and they might actually have to turn sideways to get through it. They were really narrow. Here's the point. The gate that you would go through would determine the way or the road or the hadas that you would travel by. It was what determined. For example, typically if you entered through the main wide gate of the city, it would be on a marble paved road that would lead through the marketplace, past the theaters, past the day spas, the bathhouses, lined with marble columns, statues of gods, and at the end it would end at the courtyard in the palace of the king. Because that was the great end to that walk. You wanted to be with the king, and that's where it would lead. The narrow gate, on the other hand, was sparsely used and often opened from dangerous areas outside the city into what might we think, what we might think of as residential neighborhoods where the masses lived, but it was small, it was narrow, it was there to protect the citizens so only a single person could get through or it could be easily guarded. Now, with that, Jesus is distilling his teaching down to decision, a decision between two options. And using the gate imagery, he's not being simplistic or reductionistic, but he's just a good teacher and a good leader who knows something that they may not know or they may not understand. It's likely that he wants his people on the hillside to feel the weight of the decision that they face. There's a lot on the line. This matters more than any other decision that they will make. But he also possibly wants them and maybe us to be surprised and shocked and possibly even uncomfortable 
that we cannot postpone or deny the decision. If you're going to enter the city, you're going to have to pick a gate. There's no other way into the city. But the gate you pick will determine the way or the highlights. So, let's take a look, closer look at what Jesus says in this. He talks about two types. Two types of gates, two types of roads, two types of destinations, and two types of popularity of the choice we make. And he kind of contrasts them. So the gates, there's a wide and a narrow gate, as we've already said, the road. There's an easy and a hard road. Destinations. There's one that leads to destruction or life. Popularity. One lots of people choose. Another one only a few end up choosing. So what exactly might Jesus be thinking of when he talks about a wide or a narrow gate? Well, with the use of the wide gate picture, Jesus seemed to suggest that if you're going to choose the wide gate, anything gets through. It doesn't much matter. There's not a lot of security at the wide gate. You can come through with whatever you've got. And you can get through the gate. There's not much security. There's not much watching what you're bringing in. It's a way of saying that anything goes. Anything at all. Everything is relative and all options are on the table. Or to say it this way, to follow Jesus is to simply identify as a follower and actually do not much with it. Maybe not actually follow. Maybe just carry the identifier where we would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet there's no distinction in who we are as compared to someone who would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. It means to change nothing. It means to rethink nothing. It means to do as I wish. Whatever I want to do, I do. I heard one really smart guy this last week who said, uh, the wide gate is simply doing whatever I want to do. And that's the wide gate. The narrow gate, on the other hand, is to accept Jesus as uncontested leader of one's life. We don't use this vernacular very much anymore, but in the old school days, used to be referred to, and you see the scriptures throughout, referred to him as Lord. Now, you've got to take that picture for a little. We don't like, have lords and ladies. Not much. Maybe in your home you do. It's something of your own making if you do that. But this was the idea that there was a Lord, there was a master. We don't like that idea. But it's a way of saying that Jesus is the uncontested leader. The one who makes decisions with us and for us. It means that he's part of every decision in our life. It's who we defer to. Especially if we disagree with him on something. He's the one that we say yes to before we even know specifically what the implications of the request that he might be making would be. It would all in likelihood mean passing the wide gate intentionally to get to the narrow gate. It means leaving something behind to change something. The narrow gate is to know Jesus enough to confidently and repeatedly obey. Motivated by love for Can you understand why that's a bit of a narrow gate? You know, for many in our culture, we love the independence of making our own choices, setting our own destiny. I will become, I'll do what I want to do. In fact, I, I think in our, in our educational system, we want to encourage our kids. In our home, we want our kids to succeed. And at times we tell them, you can do anything you want to do. And in one sense, that's an encouraging thing. On the other hand, because you can't do everything you want. 
unless you want to pick the white cake. Because then it's made up of doing whatever I want to do. He talks about two different kinds of roads. There's an easy road and a hard road. Jesus seems to say that the broad or the wide road or way of living is easy to walk on and the narrow road is hard to walk on. What might he mean with that? Well, the wide and easy road is just that. It's easy. It takes very little effort. There's not much discipline involved. It comes to us naturally. It would be what could be said as the default life. It's just what I default to. It's just what I know. It's easy. There are no hard decisions because we're guided by our desires. We wake up and we go about our days. It's a path of least resistance. It doesn't make us bad people. We can be wonderful, productive citizens in society. We're just doing it our way because it's the easy way to do it. To follow Jesus, however, with resolve and moment-by-moment obedience is hard. But I have found that it's an odd sort of hardness from my personal experience. On one hand, for most of my life, actually, I thought it was just hard. I thought it was about discipline and being focused and making sure that I prayed sufficiently and I read my Bible enough. I served someplace and uh, I increasingly tried to take on by my behavior the character of Jesus. Tried so hard to be like him in a model kind of follower of his, but it was hard. It was burdensome. It was difficult to do. And in these more recent years, I've discovered it's actually easy. Now, I want to be clear what I mean by easy. It still requires denying myself. It does not. But I've discovered as I've walked with him for many years that the benefit that I get from the benefit that I get from spending time alone with him, the benefit I get from waking up whenever I wake up and giving the first part of my day to him, because that's what I'm at my best. If you're not at your best in the morning, don't give that to Jesus. He doesn't want to. Give him your best, whatever it is. But you see, there's a, there's a difficulty to it. But as I do it, the benefit is so rich to my soul, it doesn't feel hard because of what comes as a result of the formation of my soul that happens. So, yes, it's hard, but it's a different kind of hard. And this is part of that narrow walkway, that narrow road. You know, the truth is this. Good and lasting things that exceed what they promise are rarely easy. And quick and easy things are rarely able to live up to all they promise. The things that ultimately matter to us, we know this. The things that ultimately matter to us end up being those things that are hardest to do. Like having a rich and satisfying marriage. But it's worth it. What you invest in, it's worth it. Raising emotionally and spiritually thriving children. It takes a lot. It's hard. But it's worth it. Is it any wonder that Jesus breaks all the rules when, he comes, when it comes to convincing people of something that's really important to him? When he likens what he's asking them to do, to take up their cross and follow him. Jesus should not be in sales. That is not what you say if you want to convince people. Unless taking up your cross 
turns out to be the best choice for you. Because he does say, he says, now before you do that, count the cost of that. Like, do a little calculation. Because in the end, if you look out, and you will look at the life that you have in me, if you will take up your cross, you'll find it was worth how hard it is. He talks about two destinations, destruction and life. How wonderful is that? Thank you for the destruction piece. Well, it's interesting how Jesus uses the word destruction in a really, really unique way here. The idea Jesus seems to use is that he uses destruction not so much as something that blows up or it gets destroyed or decays. Rather, although that's part of it, rather, it is something that is misused or used for something other than its intended purpose and as a result of that is ruined or wasted in the process. Does that make some sense? I, I brought a chisel that I bought many years ago. I used to do some woodworking and I uh, loved to do that. And uh, so I bought myself a really good set of chisels. And uh, I, I, I used them to uh, do what they were made for. Till one day I came across a situation where I needed to use something to pry a piece of wood off of a piece of concrete with a screw drill to it. And I decided to use a chisel. It's not made for that. You know what happens to a chisel when you use it for its unintended purpose where it's uh, steel against steel and steel against concrete? You can't see it from there, but you end up with a chisel that doesn't have a sharp edge, it's a broken edge to it. It's destroyed. I can't use it for its intended purpose anymore. This is what Jesus would say. It's not just decay. It's being used for the wrong purpose. And so what he would say when it comes to destruction is that wide, easy path. You could actually end up with a wasted life. And he's not okay with that. If you go through that gate, you can waste the precious life that we've been given. To contrast that, Jesus is saying that entering the narrow gate and the hard road will result in true life. Again, he uses the idea of the kingdom. Following me may be hard, but it's what you were made for. It's where you're going to find your purpose and you're going to become, if you will, become a student or apprentice or a follower of mine. It's going to lead to human flourishing and to vitality. It's hard, but it's worth it. If you try, if you try, if you're going to agree, you will. In a way, it's like the life you dream heaven will have. And so he says, may heaven come to earth. It leads to life. And then lastly, he talks about two types of popularity, many and a few. Firstly, what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that the narrow gate is only for a few who are chosen. And that is why a few take the path. Over and over again, Jesus speaks of all being invited, and his kingdom is available to all people. What he is saying is that if you choose the wide, easy hados, we will have lots of company. And will blend in really well with the culture as a whole. These, there will be little distinction in what we value and what we do in our daily lives. We'll worry and we'll fret about the same things that others do. Our relationships will function as the majority do. Our response to disappointment and mistreatment will be as expected. You try to blend in with the crowd. However, if you choose the Jesus products, don't expect to be in the minority. In the majority, if you choose to be the apprentice of Jesus, his student, your resulting way of living will appear odd to him. Your values, how you spend your time, what you do with your money, your humility, your apparent worry-free life, your response to tragedy, 
your refusal to say unkind and diminishing things about people, your perspective on the chaos of the world, your response to loss and failure, your sense of quiet confidence and purposeful living will seem strange. And you will be on. But also mysterious and attractive and interesting and possibly after some initial questioning and rejection, you might actually be found to be intolerable and attractive. Jesus uses strong and direct language. It's a sort of line of decision-making sand, if you will. But unlike how I heard this message as a little boy, Jesus is not angry. He's not frustrated. But rather, this is an invitation from a loving king to his subjects to live a good life. A life that he will shortly die to give to. It's the invitation to live as a student, a learner, an apprentice in the school of the king. Does it have a warning call? I suppose it does. But more of a warning later, I recall shouting at my three-year-old son as he naively hit it on the sidewalk to run out of the street. I used strong, direct, urgent, loving language, followed by a full-out sprint to get him before he was in death over rent. I believe Jesus is inviting us to his audience, his way of living. And it's a good life. It's the life he intends for us to have. We cannot blend these two together. It's not possible. I would say my story would be this. But for the early part of my, I'll say my late teens, early 20s, uh, I had grown up in such a religious atmosphere that it was constricted to me. I didn't feel any sense of freedom in my faith, in my religion. And so I explored. I was questioning whether all that I had been taught was real, right, and good. But it so impacted my world that I was afraid to deviate from the rules that I was given. I doubted it, but I followed directly all the things, morality and character, that I was supposed to follow because I was afraid. You know, that's a terrible motivation to think it's a horrible motivation to think. And in my next 20 or 25 years, I would say, I tried to blend those two together. I tried to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but when it became inconvenient, when it became difficult, I had to make hard decisions. I more often than not chose what I wanted to do, the things that I was interested in. If it was a career path direction that seemed good to me, it was a little bit more money, I seldom consulted with God on it. I just figured out what was best for me. And I lived a good part of my adult life that way. Then about eight years ago, I don't know exactly what changed. It was a season with Jesus where I think he drew that hogos line in the sand for me. He said, do you really want to be my father? I'm already a pastor of the church, right? I'm a Christian. But I'm trying to figure out like, what does it really look like to follow Jesus, to be his student, to be humble enough to consult with him first, to choose to take a narrow, a narrow path, a bit of a harder path. And my life changed that. I started to read the scriptures not as something just to memorize or to intellectually understand. I started to read them from the point of view that this was Jesus' voice, this was his word to me. I became a student of what he was writing. I found it was shaping my intent and my will and my wants and my wishes. My prayers were 
how not just routine or rigid or regimented, they were actual conversations with Jesus. I would do these crazy things. I would take an empty chair and put it in front of me, and I would sit over here. And I would imagine Jesus is sitting there. We'd have this conversation together, talking together, like friends would talk. I never ever thought of that before. I never considered that being that real for me. I think my relationship with life got richer and deeper and more fulfilled because prayer together became a really significant part of our world, our marriage. We would talk to Jesus together about the things that we were doing together. I don't know why I didn't get it sooner. But eventually, God, I think, put this path that said, which one do you want to give your life to for the rest of your life? I said, I want to be a father. I want to be a student. I want to be an apprentice of Christ. I'm glad I knew that. Just, I don't know what you do with this. I don't know if you look at what Jesus is saying here and go, man, I want that life. I really want that. I don't have it. I don't know where to begin with it. Here's the practical thing we do. We could have a conversation with them. Maybe do it up. Just take an empty chair. Imagine sitting there. Let's talk together. Here's something else we do. A couple of times a year, we do something here that's called starting point. It's just a conversation around the doubts and the questions of the Christian faith. Where you can bring your doubts, and you can bring your questions, and you can bring your musings and your thoughts. And we're starting one again this coming Thursday, and you'd be welcome to join that. It's, it's a place where you can think through what hot dogs am I going to live? What road, what path am I going to take after questions? That's a great environment to do that. You go to our website, register, or call the office. We'd love to invite you to that. What you can't do is you can't stand outside the city and not make a choice. We will make a choice. Jesus in his goodness after describing what life would think would be like. He says, choose life. Choose life. And I would encourage you, choose him. Now, Jesus. For what you shared with that group of people on that hillside, and uh, I think you shared with us again this morning. Thank you for that. I'm grateful that you're, you're direct and you're clear and you don't uh, manipulate we kind of lay it out for us that there are two choices and we get to choose and uh, you've presented a really attractive option although it is narrow although it is hard it does lead to life and it is a bit lonely at times for not everybody joins us but it is a path that is filled with you guide us as we think through what path we want to